The Writer Files, a member of the Podglomerate Network. I want to mention a great resource for writers, and this month's sponsor, Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. I'll expound later in the show, but the short version is this long-awaited book about the craft of creative writing from New York Times bestselling author Steve Almond sets out to debunk the well-meaning but misguided myths that hold us back from writing our deepest and most honest work. Pick up a copy today of Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, wherever you buy books, more soon. Greetings, scribes. I have got some exciting news to share. The Writer Files now has an exclusive Patreon community where subscribers will get exclusive access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and content from productivity and publishing experts each month. In the meantime, just head over to patreon.com slash thewriterfiles. It's free to join Patreon to get a preview and you can upgrade anytime. That's patreon.com slash thewriterfiles. Help us start something special. This episode of The Writer Files is brought to you by the inspiring team at Author Accelerator. There's never been a better time to get serious about that book idea that's been rattling around in your head. And working with an Author Accelerator book coach is the best way to write forward. Author Accelerator book coaches give writers feedback, deadlines, and step-by-step guidance while you write so that you can actually finish your book. Your book coach will give you the customized tools and blueprints to success that are so often lacking in the traditional publishing world. And if you think book coaching sounds like a gig you'd like to do, many authors and copywriters have the exact skill sets needed to become great book coaches themselves. Author Accelerator offers intensive book coach training and master classes so that you can help other writers reach their goals. Just head over to authoraccelerator.com slash writer files for more info and to get a free seven-day writing challenge to start mapping out your own book. That's authoraccelerator.com slash writerfiles. I believe that if you as a writer know perfectly, not just the way you are doing your work or the way you are writing, but uh, you are very aware of the way you are the, the destination of your work, I mean, even the end of your plot, for example. If you know perfectly where you're going, so the, the reader would feel the same. And the reader will feel like everything in your writing is predictable and, uh, and, he, and he or she will get bored. Greetings, scribes, and thank you for joining us for the last Writer File of 2019. I'm your host, Kelton Reed, and this week the acclaimed, award-winning Mexican author and critic Juan Pablo Villalobos spoke with me from Barcelona, Spain, about making difficult subjects accessible to young adults, the challenge of shifting from fiction to nonfiction, and why finding the right voice and POV is so important to telling your story. The tragicomic avant-garde author known to his friends as J.P., has published film and literary criticism, short stories, and award-winning novels now translated into 15 languages. His novels include Down the Rabbit Hole, shortlisted for the Guardian First Book Award, as well as I Don't Expect Anyone to Believe Me, a Heraldi Prize winner, soon to be published in English. New York Times bestselling author Roxane Gay has called his writing excellent satire, hilarious and smart, takes on class in Mexico in a very useful way. The author's latest is a departure into young adult 
narrative nonfiction titled The Other Side, Stories of Central American Teen Refugees Who Dream of Crossing the Border. In a Kyrgyz-starred review, the heavily researched and very timely book was called A Compilation of Stories from Unaccompanied Central American Teen Refugees Who Make Tremendous Sacrifices to Cross the U.S.-Mexico Border. Told in short vignettes, the author spoke with me about how he employed the narrative techniques of fiction in order to protect the protagonist's identities and to address the difficult subject matter gathered in interviews and inspired by immigrant minors seeking asylum from both violence and poverty. In this file, JP and I discussed the importance of unpredictability, point of view, and surprising yourself as a writer, why writing is still rewriting, how the author told the stories of asylum seekers in the first person and the challenging research process behind his latest work, the power of literature for sharing difficult subjects with young readers, how the author revisited Kurt Vonnegut's writing only after being compared to him, and advice to scribes on why every writer's process should be unique. This is obviously the last show of the year, and I thank you for all of your support in 2019. We'll be back with some incredible interviews in 2020, including an exclusive, the chart-topping ghostwriter, who you may know, a self-publishing phenom, an Emmy award-winning TV writer, an expert on optimizing your creative space or office, a New York Times bestselling suspense writer, and far more neuroscience for your brain. Also, The Writer Files is now available on Alexa, because Apple Podcasts are available on Alexa-enabled Amazon devices in the United States. Now, all you have to do is say, Alexa, play The Writer Files on Apple Podcasts. Stay tuned. The Writer Files is brought to you by my friends at copyblogger.com. Words that work. Build your online authority with powerfully effective content marketing. Get superior content marketing education, so you can build a remarkable online presence. Authors, bloggers, journalists, online publishers, and entrepreneurs, head over to copyblogger.com to learn more. That's copyblogger.com. And if you're a fan of The Writer Files, please click subscribe to automatically see new interviews as soon as they're published, and leave us a rating or a review over on Apple Podcasts to help other writers find us. And we are back on The Writer Files, and I am very honored today to have the acclaimed and award-winning author, Juan Pablo Villalobos. Did I say that correctly? Perfect. <laughs> and I was testing out my pronunciation earlier, and uh, and uh, just praying that I didn't completely butcher your name, sir. But th- thanks for taking time today to talk with me uh, a little bit about your process and about this fantastic new book of yours. Thank you for the invitation. I'm happy to be with you. Yeah, yeah. Well, I want to get into the work and you know what you're presently working on. Juan is joining us from Barcelona, but uh, how are things? How are things there in Spain today? Well, it's hot here, but it seems like it's going to rain. And uh, and actually, I spent the whole summer in Mexico, and I just got back a week ago and I'm jet lagged and maybe I'm a little slow. So if you notice that my <laughs> English is becoming strange, let's say it's because of the confusion of the jet lag. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we'll blame it on that. Yeah. So do you spend most of, most of your time in Barcelona now? Yeah. And, uh, I haven't been to Barcelona in years, but, uh, 
I understand there's a famous church there that's still under construction. Yeah, it is still. <laughs> yeah, they promise still. now that, they, yeah, the, the new promise is that it will be ready, I think, in four years. Yeah, in 2024, four or five years. But I don't Amazing. know. No one knows if they will make it there, really. Yeah, yeah. And the church we're talking about is La Sagrada Familia, correct? Yeah, yeah. By the famous, famous architect, Antonio Gaudi. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I think one of the weirdest parts about that church is that he is actually, his uh, tomb is there in the church, right? Yeah. So when you go to visit, you can go down and, and pay your respects. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, but I, maybe, I don't know, I'm, I'm so used to strange things in church because of my Catholic tradition in Mexico. I have seen very strange things in Mexico. So this uh, in the Sagrada Familia, for me, it doesn't seem so weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it is a sight to behold, and it's a beautiful, beautiful building. And uh, sitting inside that church is, is just kind of a transcendent experience, I think. Um, I didn't really know what to make of it, but it, it was, it was uh, transportative. Transportative, is that a word? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'll have to me, look that one are up. You <laughs> <laughs> well, JP, as we've agreed to uh, to call you today, um, yeah. how do you how do you describe yourself as a writer? Oof, what a question to start. Well, I am a writer very concerned about not be predictable, and uh, actually, many of my procedures or even manias, I would say, uh, are related with the mission of the unpredictable. Hmm. Uh, I believe that if you as a writer know perfectly, not just the way you are doing your work or the way you are writing, but uh, if you are very aware of the way you are, the, the destination of your work, I mean, even the end of your plot, for example, if you know perfectly where are you going, so the the reader would feel the same, and the reader will feel like everything in your writing is predictable, and uh, and he and he or she will get bored. So for me, it's very important to have this feeling of the unpredictable while I'm working. And uh, actually, when I start to write, I don't have a definition of the plot, the characters. The, I have just a, a vaguely a vague idea of the issues I want to to write about, and a vague idea about one or two characters, maybe one of two ideas for the plot. But I believe that the the interest the interesting part of the process is exactly to discover this during the process. And that means that I rewrite a lot. Usually I have between seven or 10 versions of each of my novels. Wow. Because I start to write and then I, when I have, I don't know, sometimes it's 50 pages or 80 pages or 100 or sometimes 200 pages. And then I find out that, that it's not exactly the novel that I want to, to write. So I decide to stop, to go back, and to start again. Interesting. So the process for you is one of discovery, and and I mean I do 
I know, you know, a lot of different styles of writers. Obviously, you know, many writers go in knowing the destination, but I think that the ability to, to surprise yourself is pretty important. <laughs> yeah, and actually there's a point where obviously you have to stop creating. I mean, if you are, if you are at some point feel that that's the book you want to, to write, so at some point, maybe when you are in the middle or 60%, you have to stop inventing, I mean, bringing things from outside the novel to the novel. And then you have to work with just the, um, the elements that are uh, already in the book. Mm-hmm. And that, that point, I have to say that it's, it's a very sad moment for me because, because it's like, oh, fun is already uh, finish. Now it's just work. <laughs> right. And then of course writing is rewriting. So, so then, uh, yeah, then you have to roll up your sleeves and <laughs> do, the, do yeah. the hard part. Earlier in the show, I mentioned an invaluable resource for writers. Truth is the arrow. Mercy is the bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories based on three decades of writing, failing, and trying again. Author Steve Almond is a beloved professor at Harvard and Wesleyan and the acclaimed New York Times bestseller of 12 books of fiction and nonfiction. And in Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, Steve employs the radical empathy he displayed as a co-host of the Dear Sugars podcast with Cheryl Strayed, where they explored the joys and trials of storytelling to explode myths that hold us back from writing our deepest and truest work. The book includes chapters on plot, character, and chronology, but travels far beyond the earnest intentions of most craft books. It also includes writing prompts to generate new work. Pulitzer Prize-winning author Richard Russo called it one of the best books on writing he's ever read, and also the funniest. Pick up a copy of Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories wherever you buy books, and add it to your TBR today. And just a quick aside to revisit the exclusive Writer Files Patreon community where subscribers get access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and a lot more. I know that for serious writers, it can be more distracting than ever to cut through the noise, stay productive, and home in on what's happening in the publishing industry. Over eight years, we've provided a looking glass into the habits of professional writers and publishing industry insiders. And as your humble host, I've decided to launch a membership-based Patreon for serious scribes to cut through the noise, swap tips and tricks, and hang out with like-minded peers. Just head over to patreon.com slash the writer files for bonus writing resources, monthly episode breakdowns, writer's happy hour, a community of your peers, ad-free episodes, and more. It's free to join to get a preview and you can upgrade anytime. That's patreon.com slash the writer files. Help us start something cool and special. Keep calm and write on. Well, it's interesting because you've written, you know, in some very different styles and from different points of view. How do you think the point of view especially in your, in your novels can inform the, you know, kind of the, the direction of the, of the work, because you've written from the point of view of a a small child, the point of view of a, an old man and so on. I was going to say the only thing that it was exaggerated, but one of the most important things is the point of view and, and to find the, the voice to find the narrator of the novel. So that's why uh, in my first novel, uh, for example, Down the Rabbit Hole, the point of view of this child, who is the son of a drug baron, 
is everything in the novel. I mean, if you don't have that point of view, the plot is really simple. The facts in the novel and the characters are very schematic, very simple. So all the, the interest, I believe, in that novel is the point of view. I mean, the, the way this child describes things. And, uh, and, and that happens also in my second novel, In Casadillas, with this teenage, teenage uh, narrator. And also in my third novel, uh, I Will Sell You a Dog, now we have an old man. So for me, in each of these novels where uh, the process of, of finding these voices was the most uh, interesting part of the process and um, to decide whether this novel about a boy in, the, in a drug land was uh, needed to be uh, told from the point of view of this child or whether it would be interesting to tell it from the point of view of the father who was the drug baroon or from the point of view of the teacher who is a, a private teacher. So I actually wrote many versions of the novel uh, changing the point of view until I find the voice of Touchedly, the, the child, and I decided that maybe, I'm saying maybe, in the panorama of the, of the novels about violence in Mexico and the novels about what's happening now with drug trafficking in Mexico, that was a new point of view, maybe. <laughs> I mean, I know that there's, we can say that there's nothing new, but hmm. uh, maybe it was something that, at least in the last years, uh, no one made. So for me, it was interesting to assume this point of view. Well, your fiction is is uh, something to behold. It is um, at times, you know, it, it's got a tragic comic element to it, right? And it, and it borders mm-hmm. on some political satire. Mm-hmm. And you seem to, your work seems to be informed by you know, equal parts, you know, this kind of, as the, or, you know, as some have described it kind of avant-garde, but it has elements of philosophy to it. So how, Mm -hmm. how do you then transition as you have to now this, uh, young adult narrative nonfiction, (laughs) um, that is really addressing some pretty difficult subject matter, especially Mm -hmm. as Mm -hmm. it, as it applies to, kind of what's happening here in this country and yeah. our Im- immigration policy. And, and it's been, you know, mm-hmm. very much in the news, but mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. as we were, as we were talking about a little bit earlier before we started this recording, how do you make that transition? How do you then take such a work of, uh, you know, obviously you've done some important research here and I will mm-hmm. m- mention the name of the book for listeners. JP's latest is the other side stories of Central American teen refugees who dream of crossing the border. And these are, these are true stories that have informed the work, but as you, as you know, they are, you know, testimonies that you have employed, um, Mm -hmm. a kind of a, a narrative technique to, to tell these really important stories. And these are, Mm -hmm. these are voices, right? These are, uh, true mm-hmm, to life mm-hmm. forces that have informed the work. So tell us a little bit about the process and I'll stop talking now. <laughs> yeah. 
No, and, and actually, uh, it's funny because the connection between my fiction and this latest book that is, as you said, nonfiction, is exactly what we were talking about, the point of view and the narrative voices. Five years ago, in 2014, Michael Benoist, an American editor who at the time was the editor of Medium, contacted me and he asked me if I was interested in writing about the humanitarian crisis in the border. Around May or June of 2014, about 70 to 80,000 kids and teenagers were detained in the border. So he suggested me to to go to Los Angeles to interview uh, a couple of teenagers and to write the, their stories in first person. And, uh, and he was asking me to do that because he read down the rabbit hole in Quesadillas. And he said to me, I believe that you have the tone, the, the point of view, the perspective to tell these, these stories in first person. I mean, to give the voice to the kids, to give the voice to the teenagers. Yeah. And obviously I was very touched by the situation because it was, the, I'm maybe in the last uh, 10 years was one of the moments where the humanitarian crisis uh, reached the headlines. And um, in Mexico, uh, it was in the, in the news all the time. Uh, I was living in Brazil at the time, and in Brazil also was talk, was a lot of noise about this. And obviously, I, I believe that it was very important to do that, so I accepted, and I went to LA. I interviewed a couple of, of teenagers from uh, Guatemala and El Salvador, and we published the story both in English and Spanish uh, at Medium. And some months ago, my my now my, my now editor at FSG contacted me and 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 she asked me so what about if we make a book with the same idea but more stories more testimonies and uh, and for me it was a huge huge problem <laughs> I mean problem in the way that that I'm not a journalist I'm not an activist. I'm not uh, even a, an expert on immigration. Uh, that was some kind of problem of leg legitimacy. I mean, who am I to make this book? Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> what are my, my credences? Yeah. And, uh, and at the end, I decided that I had the opportunity to do it and uh, that it was important. And... Uh, and that my leg legitimacy was literary. I mean, that my work was to hear those kids, to hear their stories, to find the perspective, the point of view, and the tone to tell that stories in a way that can reach the heart and the feelings and the, and the thoughts of the readers. So I, I say yes. And, and it was a long process because first of all it is very difficult to to get access to these kids it's not yeah. easy so i had to work through ngos and through lawyers who obviously they have to take care of their 
of their kids and teenagers and and, uh, and to be sure that when they explain to you their stories, they are prepared to uh, psychologically and emotionally prepared to tell their stories, uh, which is not easy. And, uh, and it was maybe a work of one year to make all these logistics around wow. the book. And then in, in 2016, I finally went to New York and Los Angeles to, to make these interviews. And then when I came back to Barcelona with all the material, with all the interviews uh, recorded, I had an enormous crisis because I, I was overwhelmed with all the material. I was mm. like, um, I had this huge uh, crisis again about my legitimacy and about who, who am I to, to, to write this book and to take these stories and to transport them into literature. Mm. And I found out also that there was a problem in just transform them in a traditional book of testimonies. I mean, into just select some of some fragments or excerpts of the material and write them. I mean, respecting uh, the, the, the original, I mean, the testimony. And I decided that it was more interesting to use some strategies from fiction and to transform this book of testimonies in a book that actually can be read as a, as a book of short stories. Yeah. You can read it actually almost as if it is a, a, a book of short stories, as if it's fiction, but it's not fiction. I mean, and let me explain a little when I'm talking about strategies from fiction, what am I talking about? Uh, for example, one of the testimonies in the book, uh, it's one, one, one kid that is living for some weeks in a, I don't know the word for albergue. I mean, it's the, it's a place where the kids are sent when, after they are detained in the border. Mm -hmm. It's like, like a house where they are taking care of them. And, uh, so that short story, and I'm saying short story because actually it is a short story. It's written as a diary, but obviously this kid didn't write a diary. All the information in the short story is true, but the form, I mean, the diary, it doesn't exist. It's fiction. I created the diary. But I created the diary using the information from the testimony. And that, that's the kind of strategies that I use in the book. I mean, um, it's things, the content, I mean, the plot, let's say, of the book is true. Everything that is told in the book happened, but the form is fiction. Yeah. And so you're using your your skills as a uh, your literary prowess to amplify right the, the voices and the stories of these refugees who are yeah. caught up in this crisis and and I mean it must have been hard for you to to speak with them and to hear these stories and to to 
kind of, I guess, when you're going back through it, right, you're kind of reliving it with them. Yeah, it was hard, but actually the harder was for them. Yeah. And, and actually in some of the interviews, I noticed that the kids or the teenagers were suffering while we were, while they were, uh, talking about their stories. Yeah. And, uh, and I decided not to push them, not to obligate them to give, to give me more details of their stories because it wasn't necessary, necessary for the kind of book I was doing. I mean, if I were a journalist doing a very uh, extensive and very uh, detailed story about the, the immigration, maybe I would need more details, dates and facts and uh, places. But, but I, I wasn't working on a book of testimonies that, that could be subject of, of fact checking. I don't know if, if I, if I'm being clear. Sure. Um, yeah. And then when I noticed that these kids or teenagers were suffering while telling their stories, I just decided to be respectful and to stop asking and to direct my questions to another issue yeah. and not to, and to protect them. I mean, yeah. Well, it is um, definitely, I think, an important work for now. And, you know, I mean, I think reading it, at least for me, I didn't feel like this was a book necessarily written for a younger audience. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because I think these are important stories. And, and of course, you know, these young people don't necessarily get a voice and we don't hear their story enough. Yeah. Um, certainly, certainly yeah. not in like a mainstream media uh, outlet very mm -hmm. often. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, we have a, a administration right now that is really doing their best to curtail <laughs> any, yeah. any amount of any, any asylum seekers and, uh, that's pretty, it's gotta be pretty frustrating to you to see that, that kind of unfolding yeah. <laughs> on the right before yeah. your eyes. Yeah. And actually the, the book in, in Spanish, the original ver version in Spanish was published my, by my regular publisher. I mm -hmm. mean, it's not in a collection of, uh, directed to younger, to young readers, yeah. but I, but I think that it's very important that in the, in the specific case of the United States, this book is addressed to young readers because if I think that if we, if we have a hope, it is with this young people who's, who maybe I, I believe that maybe just maybe we're still on time to, uh, prevent, uh, this fascist ideas and to prevent all the prejudices that, that unhappily are, in many spheres of the of the government of the United States, and uh, and I believe that is very important that uh, this book can be read in 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 schools, high schools, and mm -hmm. uh, and that's why I'm I'm really happy that this book uh, is in a in a young readers collection.
Yeah. Well, it is important. Absolutely. And um, I think that adult readers will get as much out of it. Uh, of course, hopefully come to it with an open mind, because as you say, you mm. know, that we, there is too, there is quite a bit of, uh, we just live in a, a really divisive and, and unfortunately very tense time politically. Uh, and we're all having yeah. to deal with the, the fallout of what's happening. And it's, it's, it's really kind of heartbreaking to see, but these stories are important as you know. Again, do you want to say the title in Spanish? And you had, you had mentioned earlier that it was a, it was a slightly different translation. Yeah. Yeah. The title in Spanish is I had a dream. Uh, yo tuve un sueño. And, uh, and obviously it's, it's, uh, it's, it's related with, I have a dream of, of Martin Luther King. But it actually it's it's the sentence that one of the teenagers uh, said to me, uh, and it, and it's in the last uh, testimony, at the end of the last testimony. I mean, it's the end of the book. It's I had a dream, I dreamt that I become a lawyer. I dreamt that I was a human rights uh, lawyer. But maybe the title I had a dream for the United States would be confusing. Well, again, the title is The Other Side, Stories of Central American Teen Refugees Who Dream of Crossing the Border. Of course, I will link to the book. It has been uh, called A Critical Compilation of Stories from Unaccompanied Central American Teen Refugees Who Make Tremendous Sacrifices to Cross the U.S.-Mexico Border. And, um, of course pretty timely so congratulations on the work and and uh yeah what uh what are you working on now are you going back to fiction are you doing something a little lighter you always seem to have a uh, a pointed edge to your work so are you working on more political satire dark comedy yeah (laughs) and actually i i a couple of months ago i finished a novel and it will be published in spanish in February. And I also have a new novel coming out in English in February that it's my previous novel in Mm -hmm. Spanish. It's called I Won't Expect Anyone to Believe Me. In Spanish, No Voy a Pedirle a Nadie Que Me Crea. That's the novel I published in 2016 that won a very prestigious award here in Spain. And it will be coming out in February by and other stories. Excellent. And my new novel in Spanish, it's a political novel again. (laughs) Yeah. Surprise. (laughs) And maybe it's not so dark, maybe, but I'm not the one who will judge that. Right. And it's, it it is a comedy. Yeah, but it's different. Maybe it's not that sarcastic. Uh, It's more ironic. And it is about, political issues, yeah, and it is about specifically about the rising of this far-right movements mm-hmm. around, the, around the world, because it's happening in Brazil, it's happening in, in Italy, it's happening in, in everywhere, yeah. I mean, in the UK. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty a wild time. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know, I mean, I'm sure that we could wax philosophical about why these these things are happening now or you know kind of the effects of of it 
but uh, that's not that's for a different show, I think. <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I think my final question to you before we kind of sign off with any advice that you have for your fellow scribes is, um, yeah, I, I think I was mo- most interested in your greatest influences or, or you know, um, some of your heroes or, or you know, yeah. what just kind of what's informing what's informing your destination right now okay yeah well um i i am a big fan of a few latin american writers that i believe that they are my main influences uh an argentinian called cesar aire mario lebrero which is from uruguay and between the mexicans uh jorge arwengoitia for my generation in general it's been a very important influence He's a very political and very uh, funny writer. And I have a, a funny story about my relation with Kurt Vonnegut. Hmm. That is that that is that actually uh, I, I read Slaughter, Slaughterhouse Five many years ago, and uh, it wasn't at that time. It wasn't that important to me. Uh, but then after I published my first two novels, some critics here in Spain started to say that I was a kind of Mexican court bonnet. Hmm. And I said, and I said, what? So I was very intrigued and I returned to Kurt Bonnegut and to, and to read him seriously. And for me, it was a very incredible experience because it was like uh, maybe 10 years ago to suddenly discover your favorite writer in the whole world Hmm. when you are, when you are 35. I mean, that it's not uh, easy to happen. I mean, and I, uh, until now, actually I I teach at the university and one of of the courses is about uh, the representation of violence in literature of the 20th century. And, uh, and I teach Kurt Vonnegut, of course. So, uh, but it's funny because it wasn't in my intimate influences hmm. until, until some critics pointed. That's interesting. <laughs> and yeah. Then, oh, okay. Yeah. So it's kind of, it's kind of meta. It's like, uh, you being compared to a great and then, and then really being, <laughs> turning yeah. it around and then yeah, so they were, yeah. and actually oh they were right <laughs> <laughs> that's cool it's like wait a second yeah very interesting i love it uh well i just want to say congratulations on the uh on that heraldi prize that you won and um all of your successes but do you want to do you want to leave uh writers with any advice uh on just how to how to keep going how to how to, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, I think that my, the, the, the only advice that I can give is that any writer have to find his or her own way of writing. I mean, there is no, uh, ideal or a uh, single solution about how to write a novel, how to write a book. And, uh, Sometimes these kind of advices are very categoric, like you should do that. You can't write if you don't know the, the, the complete plot. Mm-hmm. You can't write if you don't know the point of view. You can't write until you blah, blah, blah. 
And that's not true. It's different for each of us. I mean, um, uh, what works for one, what works for me, would not work for for another writer. Mm-hmm. So, and and I mean that this uh, in in my case, uh, I believe that this applies to each book. I mean, every time I start a book, I have to find the way to write that book, and it's not necessarily the same way that I used in my previous books. So it is a constant uh, learning process. And the sensation when I start to write a book is that I don't know how to do it. And it's very frustrating, but it's, but it's part of the process to have this sensation. Yeah, well put. Well, I think we can sign off there. And I, I just wanted to... I, of course, will put the link to the latest, um, The Other Side, Stories of Central American Teen Refugees, A Dream of Crossing the Border. And um, we will also point at your Twitter page there. Yeah. And um, listeners can can reach out there. It looks like um, I will put the, a link to your Twitter page there, Villalobos J- J-P-E. J-P-E. Yeah. And uh, yeah, you can find JP there. Thank you again for taking time to talk with us about uh, your work and, and your process. And we wish you the best of luck in the future. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much for joining us for this episode of The Writer Files. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe to the show. Leave us a rating or a review to help other writers find us. You can always leave us a comment or a question and visit the entire archives at writerfiles.fm. And you can always chat with me on Twitter at Kelton Reed. Cheers. Talk to you next week.